Welcome to Dramatic Pause, being recorded on the ancestral and unceded territory of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh and Squamish nations at the Firehall Arts Centre in what is now downtown Vancouver. My name is Donna Spencer, artistic producer at the Firehall and the host for today's podcast. Dramatic Pause launched in the third month of the COVID-19 pandemic. The closure of live performing arts centres in British Columbia, across Canada and around the world has overwhelmingly affected live performances, shutting down theatres and creating unemployment for countless numbers of artists, creative workers, arts administrators and production staffs. Here in BC, some performing arts venues and theatres began producing performances for very small audiences of 50. Audiences, artists and staff were kept safe through strict COVID protocols being put in place. These performances continued until November 22nd, when we received notice that we needed to all shut down. At that point, I think it's important to note that no community outbreaks had occurred that could be traced back to these live performances through contact tracing. This second shutdown has not only affected artistic businesses and the artistic economy greatly, but it also has had a huge impact on the emotional health of audience members and lovers of live performance. The goal of Dramatic Pause when we first started recording was to keep in touch with artists during the pandemic through conversations. And as we head into a new year with no certainty about what might come next, I will be talking to artistic directors about how they are working to get their companies through these tough times and what they've been up to. And I'm so delighted to have as my guest today, Roy Surrett, Touchstone Theatre's Artistic Director. Roy has been Artistic Director of the Belfry Theatre in Victoria and the Centaur Theatre in Montreal, as well as having a stint at Touchstone back in the old days, prior to heading off to the Belfry. He is an award-winning director, has undertaken freelance director jobs across the country, and Vancouver is very fortunate to have him back working in our city. Welcome, Roy. How are you? Thank you, Donna. That's a very lovely introduction. <laughs> but it's true. It's not even false news. <laughs> we'll so, get to that. We'll get to yeah. some of that. <laughs> the gossip comes later. Right. Uh, what have you been doing since COVID hit? I mean, well, kind of what I'm doing right now, I stare out my window a lot. Um, I'm, uh, I'm mostly at home. Uh, Touchstone's offices are now at the Post at 750 in the shared CBC building. Uh, with the Push Festival, Music on Main, and Doxa, but we're pretty well uh, popping in once in a while. And uh, but mostly everybody's working from home and have been since March. So uh, and I, when I came back to Vancouver, I had a kind of a, a little dream to be looking out to sea. And I bought my I bought. I'm renting a, an apartment um, right on Beach Avenue in English Bay. Uh, you've seen my sunsets. Yes, you've started a whole new career of photographing sunsets that are lifting everybody's spirits. They really are. They're beautiful. They're, they're, it's kind of a wonderful uh, opportunity. Uh, right out my window is the sky and I look out, uh, I'm looking at the, the tree that becomes the big Christmas tree every year. And um, over the edge of Stanley Park and now the mountains beyond and uh, right, in, right on the bay. So it's really a wonderful view. And it does, it gives me a great deal of pleasure to stare at it. And I do that quite frequently. And I'm, you know, I'm sort of set up on my dining room table and with my laptop. And that's what I, you know, do. I'm going to shift a little bit better. So, so you have a better so view. Can, <laughs> yeah. Count the ships. As Michael McLaughlin, my friend, does, he is always counting the ships in the harbor. And uh, I don't know what the value of that is, but gives you, it's good to have activities. So well, I guess that's sort of. <laughs> well, yeah, I was just going to say, uh, have you been doing a lot more walking or more reading or uh, more chit-chatting over the Zoom? I mean, what have you been doing for your self's health? My self-health? Um, I have been walking quite a lot, like because I've got the seawall right outside my my back door. I've been walking around the seawall quite a lot. All right, I actually walk as far as past just past Third Beach, and then turn around. I, I stay on this side instead of the Coal Harbor side, and and that's been sort of a, a common practice. And walking a little bit through the woods of uh, Stanley Park, it's so fantastic to have that. You know, I did survive ten Montreal winters, so I'm still in a little bit of awe that here we are in January. And my neighbor Leslie Silverman just took a picture of the first daffodil coming up outside. So we're we we've got to count our blessings about that that we're in a climate that allows us to get outside, and uh, that you know even really nearby you can go for it's great fun to go for walks in the woods in right in Stanley Park. I uh, 
was there the other day and uh, with uh, Lara Sadiq and we followed a coyote around a yes, little bit. Yes, apparently there's a wild, <laughs> aggressive coyote in Stanley Park that it was actually, they were oh, recommending people not go into certain areas because this particular coyote is act actually chased people. Oh, So you're very lucky, obviously, you didn't encounter that one. I wonder if this one seemed very, seemed passive, but you know, it was, I think it's the first time I've actually seen a coyote <laughs> in Stanley Park. I know there's a, a sign a warning a little bit closer to the uh, Lionsgate Bridge that says, you know, uh, please try to take a different path, uh, path because there are coyote families in this area and they're young families, so they would prefer not to be disturbed. Well, who can, who can yeah, argue I with that? I think perhaps you should follow the sign. <laughs> <laughs> science recommendations we want to keep you around for a little a little longer i don't think coyotes have actually attacked people but they can be quite aggressive no can i blame lara sadiq <laughs> as soon as we saw it she said let's go that way and we and i and I, I i picked up a stick we each picked up a stick oh good good anyway it was fun. um so in, you've been keeping in touch with performers lara sadiq wonderful actress um how do you think they're doing? How do you think those artists that we normally work with, all those actors that come onto our stages and tell stories, how do you think they're doing? I think they're, you know, everybody, I think a lot of people are questioning what is next and what, uh, what is the alternate path that might be um, in their future. I mean, you know, I think something that was, came up on a, on a, um, Packed conversation was James McDonald from Western Canada Theatre said, I think we're feeling as those that are trying to maneuver and trying to or run organizations, a little bit of survivor guilt because we are, we're still employed in our organizations. Thank you for wage subsidy, et cetera. But it's, uh, you know, we're, we're, I don't think we have an easy task right now. And when you asked me to do this interview, I went, oh, I don't know whether I'm in the right headspace to really talk about my great plans because I don't know whether I have. It feels like what we've been mostly dealing with in this last year is canceling mm -hmm. things, right? And, and then hope, and then moving things a little bit into the future and then having to cancel them again. And it, it feels like we're still in that, um, you know, in that mode and will be for a little bit longer. Um, but I feel like a lot of people I talk to are now really looking at um, probably things that were always in the back of their mind about alternate options for them to make a living and put their energy into because those that are really dedicated to the theater are un still understanding that we've probably got, you know, we still got a, a bit of a, a road ahead in terms of not being able to gather the way we normally do. And you talked a lot in your interview about that process and it's, it's that notion of collaborating with fellow artists and being in a room and hashing it out. And um, I felt a little guilty that I said, let's do this by zoom because I could stare out my window when I should, I should come down to the fire hall. And at least well, be, you would you know, be, you would be physically distanced. Apart. We've, we've become quite, uh, uh, accomplished at ensuring that people can uh, physically distance while they're here working or actually when they're here watching mm -hmm. a performance. Now you did a reading uh, of a play in the fall, right? Touchstone did a reading of a, of a new play. Um, and how did that go? Cause yeah. you had live performance at that. Did you not, or did you stream it? Yeah, we, we did both. We did a kind of a combination where we did three performances and we streamed it and we did it with um, in conjunction with uh off the page, which uh, is out of uh, Gibson, right, uh, yes. Janet Hodgkinson, if you remember, and, and um, they were starting the they, they had started the idea of doing some play readings uh, at Presentation House, and then and Kim and you know as you uh, people running venues have been resourceful in finding different ways to kind of keep animation going. Uh, we did it at Presentation House as part of their. Um, uh, kind of a co-op that they've created for artists to be able to uh, have use of the space and use of uh, rehearsal space. Um, so we did a, a couple of rehearsals and a three performance run of a new David King play called Overdale. David King, uh, you know, Maybe, one, yeah, we've yeah, done yeah, yeah. several plays of his so at the fire hall over the years. I did some in my touchstone days. And it was Dave. It was a two-hander that he wrote for him and Nicola Cavendish. So exactly, who could say no to that? So we did. We did our three uh, performance run at the presentation. I'll say actually removed uh, all but 
40 seats, I think it is, in the venue, and they could they could do capacity of 30 at socially socially distancing the groups or the the individuals or the pods, etc. And we had, you know, three little sellouts of our 30 performance. And uh, and on the third one, we also did a live stream and had about 100 people attending that. So it was great. It was like a mini little project. It was like uh, uh, we often do with new play uh, workshops is it's a it's an intense and you're kind of it's a bit of a wing and a prayer. And uh, but it went really well. We were really happy to be doing it. And we did it in September. David's been dealing with some very serious health issues, and so we wanted to do it as soon as we could. And um, I'm really, really grateful that we got the opportunity to and do it and that it went well. But it was that that experiment, as you say, going into the theater and you know putting the protocols into place, and uh, people were wearing their masks, and um, you know everybody felt really safe. But it was the, you mentioned that notion of uh, it was so great. It was. September, so it was warm enough that most people were outside the doors until they had to come in, and then they came in in small pods and made their way to their designated seats, etc. But do you it, think yeah, that one of the reasons we're really we're closed is because people don't actually understand how uh, we operate professionally? I mean, do you think people or people that make these decisions have any sense of how caring we are for our artists and that we have? agreements that we keep in place to ensure they stay safe even before covid <laughs> i i think that they do understand that there's been a lot of attempts to make sure that there's safety and i think we we're just kind of because uh it involves gathering because it's large larger groups it also involves commuting to our theaters one way or another um, I, you know, I think it was just a more of a, 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 an encouragement to say the best thing you can do right now is stay at home. And I, I feel, I felt terrible for, you know, places like the fire hall and, uh, presentation and the arts club that had really put effort into, you know, finding safe ways to gather. And I felt completely comfortable being a theater rat. I was going to, you know, I came to things at the fire hall and saw some of the work at the, at the arts club and I felt in no way I felt completely secure <laughs> more secure than going into a coffee shop um, you know and the gathering you know somebody said well maybe we should be doing theater on planes because they're allowing <laughs> allowing people to gather at closer proximity than we've certainly uh, set up in the theaters but I guess as the numbers were building it was really more about going what are we going to going to do that so that we don't become like Montreal and Toronto are right now where you know it's a real danger zone. Yeah, I think I mean I do I, I do would agree with you. I think that motion that movement was really about ensuring that everybody just slowed slowed down. I mean I think and and stayed at home and hunkered down until this was over. But I I, I think what I, I find kind of confusing is why there's certain decisions that have been taken that don't make a lot of sense as to why other places are open and operating. And I think it's got something to right. do with the fact that we're not really perceived as um, businesses, but we're, that that that's a whole big discussion that could take over this whole hour and more, frankly. <laughs> um, so you mentioned that you're a theater rat. I'm really curious, how did you become a theater rat, Roy? What, what brought you to the theater? Well, <laughs> I think fairly typically I was like, um, you know, I was, I, I went to school. I grew up in Surrey. Uh, my junior high was really, had a really, really active drama program. And I wasn't involved in the drag drama program. I was always a visual artist by, from the time I was about four years old, I was sure I was going to become a commercial artist, whatever that wow, meant. I didn't yeah. really quite know. <laughs> but I, I was quite committed to that. So all of my elective courses were in, um, in the visual arts, uh, but anybody at the school was open to be participate in the drama festival plays, and I got uh, pulled in to um, the fray of that. And we were involved in a production. I was Joe the bartender in Half Pint Wyndham Rides West. <laughs> uh, I'm going to have to read that script. <laughs> oh, it's a good. It's a goodie. It's a, it's good for a cast of thousands, and we did. We had a cast of thousands, and um, one of my best friends was playing the lead, and he was the guy that was always into acting. I blame him for getting me into the theater, and he wisely has become. He became thirty years ago a wealth manager, so he's <laughs> he's not kind of you know uh, he's a supporter of the arts, but not a 
not somebody who decided to stick it out. And I, I did. I, um, I started writing plays. And, you know, to be honest, I think it even goes back a little further. I was a puppet maker when I was a kid. I'd made the complete cast of Laugh-In out of my sister's flannel diapers with, <laughs> after she was uh, just out of diaper age. And I kind of a funny story is I think my, um, when my parents were not doing so well and their marriage, they got separate beds and I inherited the master uh, the the king size bed headboard and it was a perfect puppet stage. Wow! <laughs> so I had the headboard and I made this marionette stage and uh, created the entire cast of Laugh In. It was one of my projects and did all the Punch and Judies. And I was a real puppet kid from the time I was about five. It was part of my visual arts and puppets. And I tried to be a ventriloquist, but I wasn't really good at that. <laughs> They bought me a dummy, but it didn't have moving mouth. And so, you know, the, the illusion part of ventriloquism was that. So, uh, and I know, and I, I totally wish I had pictures of that or I'd kept one of those puppets because uh, Ronnie Burkett and I are about, I think our birthdays are about a week apart. We were born the same time, the same year. And I went, look what happened to him. He's made a fantastic career. I decided to be really dumb and go and start work with fellow humans. And uh, so I started writing and directing plays like in, in um, high school. And uh, I graduated having, we'd won the drama festival with a, a play called Aesop's Adapted, which was kind of like Godspell only it was Aesop's Fables instead of the Bible. <laughs> it was a little secular Godspell. And um, we won awards in the drama festivals and the back to half pint Wyndham. one of the things that we got to do is we got to travel uh we won the surrey um, drama festival and got sent up to dawson creek where christopher newton was our adjudicator and he gave us some kind of an award i think he had to we were 50 teenagers from surrey i think if he hadn't given us award tires would have been you know Slit or something like that. I can't, I'm trying to remember when I first met you. Had you graduated from Studio 58 then, or were you because didn't you go to Studio 58 as well as Douglas? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I did. I started at Douglas College right out of high school and was in the theater program there. And it was just finding its foot. It wasn't very strong at that point. And so everybody left. Nobody came back for the second year. And some uh, of some people had, let, had found their way to Studio 58. And several of us followed. Pam Johnson was part of that. Um, we were all part of the very first year at Douglas College. And uh, Marg Specht. And uh, yeah, so several of us went, then went on to Langara and I went to Studio 58 from 77 to 79. And I was the first person that graduated as a wannabe director. Okay, I was yeah. going to get booted out of the acting program, as they often did there. They kind of, back in those days, you know, some of the classes would start with 18 and four people would graduate. And I believe that there were only three people in my graduating class, including Robert McQueen, mm -hmm. uh, who's went on to become, you know, a pretty renowned director and also beautiful um, singer. And uh, Carol Byron, who I think became a bank teller. So the, we were the three graduates in 79. And I was about to be booted out somewhere in the, my last year. And uh, I, I thank Mary Lou White, who was the production manager at the time, who said to Anthony Holland, oh, come on. This, he belongs in the theater. We'll figure out something to do with him. And he wants to direct. And they kind of created a bit of a program where I went and assisted, directed for Jane Heyman and for Catherine Shaw and did a few small projects and was the first person to graduate as a director from Studio 58. Well, and we, um, I think that just points out that at that point, there wasn't a lot of training for directors, really, uh, because you were part of this group that we called the Directors Co-op. That we right. uh, we got together because we wanted to direct, but there was really no easy way to take a class on directing without sort of maybe getting into the National Theatre School. Uh, and so, right. there, I don't know if you remember this, a bunch of us did a couple of showcases where uh, uh, I think we even brought in um, maybe Bill Glasgow or some, I, I found some correspondence when I was cleaning out the basement and I went, oh my God, we wrote uh -huh. letters to people that would come in and tell us how to be directors. We even did a Right. director's conference which <laughs> yeah which would be a great thing to do again maybe but uh but yeah. uh that's i think and i don't know how i met you maybe through carousel or something because that's where i was working a lot and i think you were working there too and but anyway uh i 
it was kind of one of those self train self decided how we were going to train ourselves to be directors things exactly exactly like to find out and, and basically what most directors were always telling us was just create opportunities find ways to do it and you know uh, work on just get in a room and work with people it, it, instead of it being theoretical that's was the whole nature of that wasn't it was to, yeah just do it do it and fail and do it again and fail again and then yeah <laughs> and maybe you'll succeed um in all the work that you've done, um, and you've done some amazing projects um, as a director, do you have a favorite? Well, I've had a few things that have had like really uh, longevity that sort of became favorites. The one, you know, one of the wonderful things about theater is the liveliness or the liveness of it means that when it closes, it's gone. And we know that feeling and that we try to archive them and we've gotten at least a little bit better of being able to have a record of them. I've got old you know, VHS tapes of old touchstone shows from the 80s. And I don't even know whether they would still play in a machine or where I'd find a machine. But um, so there's a couple of, you know, a couple of projects that have had that had great longevity that um, I have a lot of memories about, mostly because they had such a enduring life and took us to different places. One was the number 14, of course, which was premiered at the Fire Hall Art Center in 91. Maybe, and it was uh, the co-pro between Touchstone and Axis Theater, and it was the masked modern comedia show set on the Hastings bus. That I remember in the middle of development process, Marietta Kozak, general manager, came in and said, "Oh, I've spent forty-five hundred dollars, and all I see is a fart joke." Because that was one of the we were showing off some of our little lapses in our our comedic um, bits. And so we had no idea what was going to happen with that. And it went on to, you know, run over almost like a 10 year, I think it was a 10 year period. And it traveled a lot. It toured internationally. Uh, it had yeah. uh, amazing people in it, like Colin Heath. He was in the original one, wasn't yes, he? And Peter he Anderson. Yeah. Uh, and Gina, and Gina Bastoni. Bastoni. Yeah. Uh, tremendous clowns. And I mean, I'll, I don't think I'll ever forget watching Colin Heath kind of move uh, through the bus off the the rails like flip itself yeah i mean it was truly amazing that was a really amazing show dressed as a little church lady yes, yes. yeah <laughs> it, it, very, very prim always would flip around and then pull down his skirt yeah. to make sure that, uh, <laughs> when the bus slammed to a stop and i don't yeah, even think exactly. there's a bus called the hastings bus anymore i think they're all called something different but i yeah, I don't know. You know, I know it disappeared actually from the roster for a while and then it seemed to come back the, as the 14, right. but I don't know whether it's called the Hastings anymore, but I think it is, oh, it you know, be, I yeah. think it is and it still goes. And the reason we chose that is it started at Burnaby, you know, at the Kootenay Loop, went all the way down Hastings, then across Granville and then all the way up to UBC. So it covered the entire city in, in essence, and that we that was one of the things that we were attracted to because we had you know all sorts of uh, street life as well as businessmen going to work as well as pretentious you know Caresdale ladies in fur coats and that kind of things all, all it was very um, very kind of representative of the city I mean it was I think that's why it, one of the reasons well one it was it was uh, brilliantly done but it was also a, a piece about Vancouver. And it was collectively created and it was really created through kind of improvisation and through, um, you know, experimentation. And, and it changed a lot, too. You know, we ran it at the fire hall a couple of times and then we ran it at the waterfront a couple of times. And then, as you say, it went it did tour. It went through the, the circuits and toured. In fact, we started the very first performances were touring to um, community centers and high schools. Colin actually broke his arm in I think it was Kamloops. And he continued to do the little old lady with a with a cast on all the uh, in, in the initial run, and I, I think that might have even been true of our our open our actual opening at the fire hall. Um, but that's that that show just for its longevity, and as you say, it took us to I went to Hong Kong with it, and went to um, Belfast, and even went to we took it a couple of times to the uh, new Victory Theater on Broadway, you know, in New York. I think it we ran, it, didn't it win a Drama Desk Award or something? Yes, yeah. It, or it was, yeah, it, I don't know whether it won or it was nominated, but yeah, it was, uh, so that, that was, so that was one of those pieces that uh, had so much kind of um, 
life to it. And it was it was always uh, a, a really fun project to revisit. I'm going to do just a really quick sidebar here and say, do you think that that show would work as a streamed recorded performance? Uh, I think if it was recorded, I think to see a recording of it in front of a live audience would be fine because it was, but it was, it was ridiculously, um, you know, physical and comedically broad. I don't know whether that show, I don't think you could revive that show right now. I think there's probably a lot of it that would be considered politically incorrect and all sorts of, and there were all, it would also lack diversity, let's face it, even though we have had a couple of diverse actors in the cast because it was six people playing about 50 different characters. Everybody was, you know, changing genders, changing all ages and uh, all, lots of aspects, but I don't think we'd create it in the same way if we were to recreate a, you know, a sequel to it. And I don't know whether it would work. I don't think it would work without an audience because it was, uh, it, it, it was as in like Media dell'arte, it was created to play with the audience. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And to evoke laughter more than anything. Which is else. so different now. I mean, I, I mean, even I, I find that, Myself, when I'm watching um, something online, I find that I can't enter into it in the same way as I do uh, in a theater. There's something about it that when you're with a bunch of people who are watching the same thing as you are, even if you don't know them, um, when they go in or when you all connect, it just lifts the whole, well, it's the, the, the audience is part of the show. Uh, there are, uh, there are, we need them. We, they're part of, part of what we create. I know, yeah. isn't that the truth? Uh, so next, in terms of shows that you've loved to do or shows that you'd like to do again. Um, I don't, you know, I'm not really great at revisiting shows that, I mean, I've had a couple like the number 14, the other one that I had a long life with because it just kept getting remounted or revived was Shirley Valentine with Nicola, which was, um, Nicola Cavendish that we did over the course of, I think, 16 years, I think it was. Maybe it was more than that. Uh, I remember when we did this show, we were a little worried. It was at the Vancouver Playhouse. It was a huge opportunity for me. I uh, Nicola asked that I direct it and um, she was 38. Shirley Valentine was 42. So we were fretting about how are we gonna age her up? <laughs> <laughs> and we and then 16 years later did you didn't have to worry about that <laughs> yeah in fact I think we did I, I think it was even a bit of a longer longer haul because we finished that show we did it at the Centaur in 2000 and oh god 15 no yeah it was maybe like 14 or 15 so it was actually uh I think Nikki was in her 60s when she finished doing Shirley and we uh, but that was a, you know, that was, a, she, she was kind of magnificent in it. And so much of her life had evolved and changed. And it was one of those like fine wine. Yeah. It just got richer the more that she did it. You know, she started it and she was pretty brilliant because she's such a chameleon. And we had the original set designer from the London production, Bruno Santini. That was part of the deal about getting the rights as we had to use that big yes. 1980s set that looked like Margaret Thatcher's hair, <laughs> the, this big hillside, hillside of Greece. It was <laughs> enormous. And I remember him coming and getting us going. And then he went back to England and came back about what, what, as we were getting ready to go into tech. And he, he had worked on it with Pauline Collins. And he just thought Nicola was absolutely extraordinary. And that gave us the big boost that took us through the opening. And uh, because it was a one-person show, even with a large set, a lot of the uh, different large theaters booked it and so we we toured the country at least a couple of times with that show and that was a just a great opportunity and now you have another uh one person show that you directed that's pretty brilliant uh that you worked with jan derbyshire on that's a pretty powerful piece that 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 has yeah. that has was having quite a life before covid and i don't know whether you guys decided to record it or stream it or has anything gone that way with that show well, you know, ironically certified, it's it's early life. Well, Jan had done a version of it at the Fringe and then really wanted to revisit and rework on it. And that's when we got together and we're kind of casually working on it. And she was invited to Calgary to, to be a part of the Handsome Alice 
season at the um, Pump House in Calgary, and we did like four performances there. And then she was invited to the Folda Festival. And so actually, it uh, for two years running, we, the first year we actually went we flew to Edmonton and uh, and recorded it as a live stream on the Citadel stage. Citadel had offered the space and the resources and some support. Jan actually figured out how to do all of a live stream just using iPhones. Wow. <laughs> so not only had she written it, was starring in this very intense piece, she also um, was setting up the phones and uh, I wound up being the, you know, the switcher and we did work with the technicians. But So it actually started as a live stream. Almost. And then we did our run at um, the uh, Colch Lab and had a really great run with it there. And um, I hope there's a future. I mean, there was certainly interest. There was talk of it. it there were some bookings that were uh, were being made across the lower mainland and other places. She did take it to uh, the theater center in Toronto as well. The Tarragon had talked about putting it into their season. But of course, that was all before where you know where where people were still you know so rigorously planning their futures and always thinking a year or so ahead and doesn't that feel like the most unusual thing now is is that we know that it's not really possible to plan the way that we've been um programmed to plan for so long and you know uh, that 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 to me is one of the things that's the most um challenging thing this time and I'm I have to confess I'm a, I'm a little relieved that I'm not running a venue theater right now because after you know um working at the Belfry for 10 years and the Centaur for 10 years where we had a big set season and lots of components uh I don't know what I would do I I, I think that would that that would be so hard I think it's I think it's really I, I find it I'm finding it really challenging because I kind of thought I had it all sorted out and that we would I mean I don't think I thought this would still be going on to this degree at this point but then I don't think anybody else really did either I mean it so you're you're trying to uh uh juggle the ball of figuring out some way to in employ and engage creative teams not knowing whether or not you'll be able to do it that way so your brain is shifting over how can i live stream it can i do a radio play of it um what is it that we can do um and i know uh, certainly a lot of non-venue theater companies are are probably trying to figure out a way how they can do anything because they don't have access to space um and that kind of space right. control has kind of had to also happen because of COVID. So we have a COVID protocol in place for rentals. Um, and, and generally, one of our staff have to be here to be the COVID uh, security person. Um, yeah, the safety officer. Yeah, the safety so officer. It's kind of, yeah. uh, it, it is very challenging. And when I, when I hear you mention all the names of those companies like Tarragon and all those amazing groups across, I think, I don't know how many members PACT has now, but there's probably 200 of us uh, and uh, if, if not mm -hmm. more and then all of those venues across BC that aren't members of PACT and I kind of I just kind of it's hard for me to get my head around the impact that that is actually having and will continue to have the fact that we're closed down that will continue to have on the creation of uh, live performing arts events whether they're theater or dance or music or whatever and also on those communities, because it's not something that I think we're gonna recover from in a year. Um, and I just unfortunately read a document that talks about not being back to kind of what we were doing till 2024. Oh my God. <laughs> so it is a bit hard to plan. And I find it very funny that right when we've kind of all in terms of talking with our funding bodies and those who provide support for us, we've moved into this model of being able to go okay, now we know that in four years, what, you know, they're long-term grants. So we apply for two or three year grants and we put in all this work into getting them in place. Uh, and God bless the emergency funding that's come from the funding bodies. But now, you know, what we plan for next year is actually really what we were kind of trying to do last year, but couldn't do. So it is pretty crazy. Yeah. It is really um, difficult. Um, and I sympathize with all businesses, but I don't think anything... As far as I know, nothing like this has happened since the Spanish flu. <laughs> right. And even in the world wars, the theater continued. So it's um, it'll be different to come out of here, come out of this. And and uh, I'm sure people are up to the challenge. But do you think the, do you, do you think theater will survive? 
live performing theater? Well, it has survived for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And I, yes, and you know, they, the other one before the Spanish flu that we hear about is, you know, the is during um, Shakespeare and Samuel Pepys's diaries from the, you know, the the plague in in Britain and what how how that shut down theaters for some time. And of course, that's when Shakespeare apparently wrote King Lear. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that was going around fairly early on. Well, I haven't written my King Lear yet, but I'm trying to at least, you know, get through my Netflix, Netflix series. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll survive, or it, 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 the art will survive. I feel like, uh, to be honest, I'm sort of thinking about going... I'm not sure where, you know, what my role is going to be in four years from, from now. I came back after, uh, you know, I think I've been an artistic director for about 35 years now. When you put the, the Touchstone and the Belfry and Centaur together and back at Touchstone. And it's fantastic to be back in Vancouver. That was my kind of my goal. Um, and I'm so glad to be back here. I really do love this community and I love the city and I love being back on the West Coast and being away from winter. Yes. <laughs> uh, but uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I, I am worried about the longevity issue. I mean, I think like a lot of things, there's, 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 you know, there's always another generation of artists that are coming up and that haven't kind of gone through all of the different things that we've gone through and they probably got uh, they have some resilience uh, about where they where they will um where they will take things next there's some fantastic changes afoot of course in terms of you know a real kind of awakening to the the need for uh further diversity and you know i do i was listening to your broad your podcast with alistair and it was great and i was remembering when you started the um, you know, the Indigenous program and people like Russell Wallace and Sherry Miracle and Kalumpa Bob, who are, you know, wonderful artists in their own right, doing, act, you know, active in, in the performing arts communities in different ways now. And that was what? That was in the 80s. Was that in the Yeah, 80s? 1986, 87 in there. Yeah. 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 And that's when, yeah, when Touchstone yeah. was in residence at the Fire Hall. It would, so, you know, the impact of, um, of, those of any of these initiatives, whether they happen then or happen now, we know that they they reverberate and that they do, they they do have huge impact on on the ecology of what is possible for the performing arts, and you know that's probably the next the next wave, right? Is is that that is needs to be furthered? Do you think there's a lot of discussion, or or, or there is certainly discussion out there about um, artistic direction and the role of an artistic director. So let's just talk a bit about what you think the role of an artistic director is, because I, I often find it very misunderstood. Uh, not to say that we shouldn't be looking at new models. That's not what I'm suggesting, because I think we should always be looking at new models and seeing whether or not that's the best route to go. But what does an artistic director actually do? I feel like, I, I do feel like it's juggling a lot of balls in the air. And I think one of the things that, um, People don't real don't don't necessarily realize how many different balls are being juggled in the air because you are you have your stakeholders uh, your stakeholders are many and they are you know if you're kind of going closest to uh, as an arts organization it is the art itself and you're trying to support and nurture and develop and provide opportunities for artists the artistic community whether that's writers directors actors technicians. Um, designers, creators, um, but you also have the, your community at large and you have your audience, you know, there's, there's no, I mean, it's one of the things during COVID time we're going, if there's no audience, there's no show. And of course we are finding different ways to connect with our audiences online, et cetera. But it's also, you know, there's so much juggling between trying to um, work with limited resources. Let's face it, like we've we've not never had abundance. I mean, I know that uh, even starting theater in the coming out of school in the late 70s, everybody was hearkening back to the time when, you know, Tamanus and Touchstone and all those were founded, which was six or seven years earlier during the LIP grants, et cetera. And I benefited. I was the original artistic director at Burnaby Summer Theater, which was like, uh, you know, a summer stock sort of company that was uh, able to employ a bunch of artists to create a few plays at the James Cowan Theater. Now the um, right. Shadbolt Center, or as part, which is part of the Shadbolt Center. But um, I feel like it's juggling all sorts of things. We, and, and we do have a, we, we do need, we 
play a leadership role and we have the privilege of programming and choosing material that we feel might be um, of benefit to the community and what that can be of benefit to artists or uh, an audience or deal with the subject matter of the play or hopefully illuminate our world in some way. I mean, I feel like I've been more gravitate. I've always gravitated to plays that um, reveal some of the challenges that we face as humans and that, and that it, I, I think I have gravitated towards plays that sort of deal a little bit with more marginalized peoples than, um, you know, some like a lot of standard sort of uh, uh, comedy or you were talking and uh, we were talking about the evolution of Canadian material. And, you know, when, when you sort of embark on to working on new pro new plays with new projects, anything is possible. Uh, and um, I feel like I'm kind of talking in a bit of a circle, but yeah, you are, <laughs> <laughs> but it's okay because actually it kind of, it, it kind of mirrors what ends up happening um, in a way as an artistic director, as you were picking your programming. And uh, I mean, I certainly know that I, I see a lot or I used to see a lot. Um, I, and I know you see an awful lot. You see most of everything that happens in terms of plays. You always have, you've been really good at that. Um, I used to read a lot. I used to travel to see uh, plays that I thought were uh, ones that would speak to our community, that were good stories. I mean, good stories are really important, I think. Um, but I imagine that when you were programming for the Centaur or the Belfry, you might've been thinking somewhat differently in terms of how you program from what you um, do with uh, Touchstone. Mm -hmm. Because those are, I mean, the Centaur is a big ship <laughs> with lots of supporters. Um, hopefully they'll all flock back as soon as Montreal is healthy and safe. Um, and, and the Belfry is, uh, again, a different kind of audience. Um, so there is a difference in that. Is there not? <laughs> yes. No, there is. And there was opportunities. It's sort of funny to kind of come circle, right, to come back to Touchstone. And uh, I think when I was um, ready, when I went to the Belfry in like 1997, I was so excited about going to a place that has it, had its own venue, its own production team, and its own audience and its own, you know, uh, stability of, uh, of organization. And I really benefited from the opportunities that I had there. And I loved being at the Belfry in, so, in many, many ways. Uh, but ten, in, 10 years later, when the opportunity came to go to Montreal, I went, well, who could, uh, how could I possibly turn this opportunity down? And I was really grateful that I did that as well. It was a lot harder in Montreal because of the transition between uh, just the Anglophone population is becoming more the minority all of the time. And uh, it felt like we were very much the poor cousin to the French scene mm -hmm. in terms of resources and, and even in terms of audience. Um, but you're right that you have the task of really being more audience driven there. So you're even having to second guess some of the more interesting choices you might want to make as to whether those would attract the numbers that you need to achieve, like at the Centaur we needed to sell a million dollars of tickets a year and uh, of a $3 million budget. And uh, that was, you know, there were some shows that would become really big hits and, and really sort of uh, shoulder the rest of the, or, or support the rest of the season. But there were lots of them that were always sort of underperforming a little bit. And I found that was really, really difficult to sort of. Yeah. I think some of the, with. it's some, it's funny how sometimes those underperforming ones are the little gems uh, in your heart, you go, are. this one's a gem and I just wish more people were interested in it. And then I'm not saying that the bigger ones that draw audiences uh, aren't gems. It's just that it's different. Uh, exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, but I did, I did look to the opportunity to come back to Touchstone to go back to going, well, Touchstone has always done some pretty edgy stuff and interesting stuff and, you know, experimental in some ways. Um, not so much in that uh, it feels a little old school now to be back at a company that is about text-based um, Canadian plays. And, uh, you know, Katrina certainly carried that mantle and did some fantastic work and did, um, you know, introduced the community to a lot of authors from across the country. And that's always been part of Touchstone's mandate and continues to be. Uh, and I love that. I love the fact that we can bring, um, you know, different writers 
forward as well as developing our own material. This current year that we just, well, the year that we just finished, uh, which was interrupted with COVID and we were about to do lights with you at the fire hall, Adam Grant Warren's play was interesting in that all of the plays were text-based, but they were all written by the writers were performing in them as well. And that even went, you know, as, as, as goes even with our push co-presentation mm -hmm. of um, Old Stock by Hannah Moscovich and, and um, Ben Kaplan. Ben Kaplan was, you know, the lead um, performer in that piece. And that, so it was kind of a, a, an evolution of writer performers taking it, you know, taking things a step further and going into full productions of plays that they're, that they've Well, uh, and I think text-based work into. is still, I mean, still resonates with um, sectors of the audience for sure. I think there's lots of people that are very much into text-based work, but I think what now is happening is, um, well, certainly in Western theater, text-based work, work has been what's driven it. Uh, and then we had musical theater, of course, driving it as mm -hmm. well. But I think more and more I'm seeing um, uh, the next generations of theater makers wanting to um, in include all sorts of dis interdisciplinary works in their work, somewhat like dance. You know, dance, I've always thought dance, contemporary dance is, a, is an interdisciplinary field because there's always there's always a composer. There's always a, a, a lighting, uh, a lighting score. Um, and uh, mm -hmm. there's always sometimes text and 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 movement. So um, I think theater is kind of broadening out and becoming more inclusive of different art forms, uh, which I think is exciting. But I I'm a, I love text, so I love how language is used, and I think there are lots of people out there that like that as well. But I wonder whether that will continue as more and more digital stuff comes at us and more and more. Well, I guess at some point I won't have to worry about it, but <laughs> but will the shape of theater change uh, or will it still be driven by good story? And I, I think it will. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and narrative, like narrative tools. And it's so interesting because who hasn't like uh, dived into more television? Like I, I used to be out pretty well you know, four nights a week, I'd be at some performance somewhere. That's when I discovered that there are sunsets here. <laughs> Suddenly at 7.30, I was at home instead of in a lobby. Um, and and it's been a year of that. And uh, I really enjoyed so much of the, you know, the television that I've seen, some of the series, et cetera. But the the narrative structures are very different than what we have in the in, often in the theater. Although, you know, I think back to some of the exciting projects back in early touchstone days, well, er, early for me, things like Map of the Senses and uh, um, Lost Souls and Missing Persons and these yeah. plays that were written pretty well like film scripts where they were, they moved around. And we have, we do have great artistry in our design teams that can, uh, as you say, create the magic in a simple way where it doesn't take that, you know, it doesn't take full Broadway uh, sets to transport um, uh, from location to location. And, and uh, you know, I love the, I love the intimacy that you get in, a, in the room. It's been really fun to come back and do our work at the fire hall again, because it had been quite some time since I'd been able to, uh, to work there. And uh, it's such a great, intimate room. It's like a large enough stage that you're not as restricted as you are in a lot of smaller um, seating venues, but it's, it's just got, it's, it's got such connection between the stage and the audience. Well, we like it. We think it's pretty good. We want, we, we want to see theater back on that stage very soon. Um, what do you, what do you think you miss the most during COVID? Uh, I miss, I, I do miss being in the room with other artists and just having that kind of, I, I feel like as a director, I've always been a pretty actor collaborative and working, like I like the collaboration and you can't really do it in the same way over Zoom or whatever. You can get tastes of it, et cetera. But I miss that. And what really seems to drive me a little bit crazy is what's left is more administration, like more logistics and more, even, you know, even some of the grants that are there to help us sort of weather it through, you know, reinventing another kind of a pivot project is, <laughs> I hope we're done with those for a little while, because I, I mean, I appreciate that, that there's support and we've actually kind of come up with some really exciting ideas for the future um, that we would like love to be able to see come to fruition. But I, I miss, I just miss that. Um, I mean, I miss the 
collaborative notion of creating together in a room. What do you like the most, the sunsets? Uh, I do. I, you know what? I've actually kind of appreciated it. It took me several months to realize that because I'd come back from Montreal and I'd all, there was already an overlap with the touchstone and my, I haven't really had a break <laughs> in my, in my professional career. I've, I haven't had any kind of gaps and I've had one. And, uh, at first it took, it's, it's taken me a long time to get back at it in a way and mm -hmm. I find myself working at a little bit more of a slower pace and a more thoughtful play pace and it, the ability to say you're not a, you know you're not being a lazy bum by not achieving as many things as I was used to in a day um you know it's a I, back to the artistic director it, it's never ending like you go to bed with it and <laughs> you wake up with it and there's a lot of things to uh juggle because you're also managing uh buildings and people and organizationally um trying to find ways to cultivate growth and cultivate your um, supporters and it's endless. Yeah, I think that actually is one of the benefits. I think people will come out of, I hope, uh, and I hope this applies to me, although I, I, I do agree with you that it seems to take, there's so much more, it feels to me like there's so much more that you have to do to be able to do anything uh, creative uh, compared to what it was like when you went, okay, we picked the show, we get it cast, we, yeah. <laughs> we got the team, we're going to rehearse. Uh, and now it's sort of like figuring out which pocket uh you're doing this under whether you're doing it under a uh i asked uh, an actor contract an equity contract whether is there's no contract that actually applies to what you want to do uh, so there's all that kind of confusion and and who who's who who do you pay for rights if it's a stream performance and uh, it's 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 uh, there's a lot more administration to it i think i think you're absolutely right um and then there's also the question of okay how do you how do you actually engage the artist do you rehearse over zoom if you rehearse over zoom does that give you enough time yeah <laughs> uh so it is a bit it is it, it, i think it is a lot more demanding actually to try to make this work but i also on the other side of it i'm going okay we don't need to necessarily work at the pace that we worked at before uh, we don't need to have a new show up every week. Uh, now with a venue, you're always trying to animate the venue. So you're mm -hmm. trying to go, okay, how many days can we use to support the development of this work? And how many days should we be open so that we're actually able to employ the part-time staff who we engage to support the work? Right. So it is a bit of a, a challenge, but I think it's, uh, for me, I think we will come out of this with a new kind of working model perhaps and maybe we won't all be so uh driven because i do think people in the arts are pretty driven <laughs> um, yeah i i think we've been forced to be in a lot of ways like i mean i, th I don't think we'd ever we're, we, and i don't think we were unaware that that was what we were signing up for in a way but you know you, there's a lot of hustle involved in in and and, and it does have to sort of constantly be shifting etc nobody gets to i don't know too many people that actually work in the arts that have been able to rest on their laurels or sit back like it, and it goes from you know running the arts club to running you know the smallest organization there, there's a lot of um components that go into the the process of creating uh an art that involves different um artistic disciplines like theater is that funnel that yeah. does do deal with visual art and um in design and it, it does deal quite often with music and sound and we are as you say you, you know looking working in, in with different um disciplines to create the work but then to then add in the audience and the need for an audience and the need for promotion and need to when you're doing new work and it's not like oh it's not hamlet like people do not know what um you know lights is about or what certified is or you know the the brand new you know the brand new pieces that uh house and home um you know yeah you have so to true. generate kind of an interest and that's another thing that's kind of shifted a lot is our ability to connect through media has really diminished there's far fewer places to promote your work i mean there's online everything is, is is sort of online and we're i think we're probably getting even better at that and giving it the focus that it probably always needed by um 
you know, making sure that we're communicating well with our supporters and our, our potential audiences online. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's certainly, I think everybody's learned a lot more about, I mean, when you think about it, like six, seven months ago, we certainly weren't having conversations by Zoom. No. <laughs> and, <laughs> we weren't and we were uh you know i remember my first zoom call going oh my god how are we going to do this <laughs> and then realizing that it was pretty easy uh when yeah. it came right down to it but i i wonder about um i i see so many images we all see so many images a day on facebook and um uh uh well uh if you actually do use twitter or you do instagram so there's a barrage of images out there. And I wonder whether, and I'll have to ask a marketing person this, whether now, because they used to say that you needed six strong uh, hits before that would convince somebody to investigate your show. And I'm ah. wondering now, uh, and that, that was, you know, when we had print media and images that were posters or ads, whatever, plus, and then we added in social media, which was really helpful, but and it's a positive way to get the word out. Certainly we've used it in the last few years and it's been really good. Um, but what I wonder is whether we now need more exposure to actually have any impact. Because I know for me, I see Im images, 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 and I go, oh yeah, I should check that out. But after about the 12th, I go, okay, I think I missed it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, so I'm not responding as fast. And I wonder if everybody else, how many hits it takes before somebody would go, oh yeah, that looks really interesting. I should check it out. I know. And it goes back to that fear of like the erosion of our audiences that we have built up that have been in the habit going, mm, I wonder what's going on at the fire hall right now. I'll just go and I'll, I'll, there's different sort of places to find it. Like cultivating our audiences has also been a really major activity for, I think most of the most organizations, unless you've sort of somehow created something where you're not responsible for that. If, you know, if you're a company that maybe just produces work that goes into festivals and the festival brings in the audience. But for, you know, for companies that are trying to, you know, evolve their relationships, I feel like the worry is, is that you're going to forget us. You're going to, you know, you're going to, you're going to forget how much pleasure you got or how, how committed you were to seeing the work that we're doing. Well, and we were kind of reminded of this, this past fall because we didn't do a season's brochure because we didn't, we didn't do a print season's brochure right we didn't do anything in print we just did it all online and and a couple of our patrons reminded us that they they didn't know what we were doing um in some cases it were people that were not um interested in even looking for information online but or, or they didn't actually quite know where best to find it and and uh, because we'd always sent them something right um and so that reminded uh, us that we really did have a bunch of uh, wonderful supporters who really preferred print mm -hmm. to seeing things online because they could find it easier because <laughs> it actually so, arrived in their doorstep as opposed to having to look for it somewhere. Yeah, no. Did you wind up sort of creating? Yeah, a, we did uh, actually. A version that you could send them. Yeah, it wasn't a it wasn't yeah. a brochure. It was just a listing oh. of what we were doing, and and we deliberately chose not to do anything for the spring because we weren't sure what was going to happen. <laughs> Uh, we we've already had to move one show this year that was supposed to be on in January. So um, anyway, I'm, I'm very curious about what will happen with how we can, how we communicate um, and whether it will be more one-on-one -on -one through conversations over zoom with patrons mm -hmm. or what it will be. But I have a question that I ask everybody. Uh, can you uh, give me an example or describe what you think a dramatic pause is? Um, Hawaii. <laughs> it was something that when I lived in Victoria, I had a partner for a while and he was really great at getting me to take a vacation. And I'd never really taken vacations before. And our favorite thing to do was to go to Hawaii and um, the partnership ended as it needed to, which was fine, but I sure miss Hawaii. <laughs> I, 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 I just miss the, the, um, the notion of, and I know I think somebody uh, also said, sitting on a by a log in front of the ocean watching the tide come in and, and go out i i second that but if you have a you know if you can do it um and be enjoying a great meal and a glass of wine i think that was one of your choices I, i'm combining a little <laughs> yeah, bit I think of, I said, a, a sitting of sitting in front of a fire <laughs> with a Fireplace. glass of wine in my hand um but i know for me one of the things is i i really miss 
what if when you get first get on a plane and the plane takes off and you know well now people can contact you on a plane but you know for a minute that you're right or at least sometime that you're sitting in this space where no one can go hey don i have a question <laughs> yeah <laughs> i just mean yeah yeah but that that i miss and and the other question i ask everybody is what would you do if you had uh, if you got a grant or someone gave you a bunch of money um, that you could spend on anything, what would you do? Well, I, God, I don't know. I, I've come back right now. I'm in a, I, I, I wouldn't mind owning a place again, although I, I was an owner when I moved to Victoria and in Montreal and condo and I had some condo hell in Montreal, although I had a great place. I'm in this little rental that I really like, but I wouldn't mind having the security of a, of a nice place to live. But then I would give the rest of the money to my favorite arts organizations. And there are lots of deserving uh, contenders for that. Um, I, I really wish the, um, yeah, I, I wish there was more um, support for, I, I really feel like the, the arts, as you say, play such a vital role and do feed people in such different ways. I do think one of the things we've been talking about more and more that accessibility and affordability are really vital, like in even nurturing audiences that might not think that they should go to the theater or that they that it's worth the the investment of their you know hard-earned dollars or their their limited resources. So uh, if there were ways to use the use support to make things really accessible for anybody who wants to be able to come to the theater without having to, you know, fork out $35 or $25 or God knows $150, depending on which venue you're at. I mean, we could talk a lot longer and we could start to gossip, but do you have a message that you would send out to all those artists out there that are trying to decide what they should do next um, and uh, how they could do it? Oh, that's a hard one. That is a hard one. I mean, I, I have listened to a few, I have had conversations with some people and they sometimes have some really great ideas of like, I mean, when you choose the path to go down, I'm going to work in the theater, you know that you're really not going to um, get rich and you're not going to, if you can make a living at it, you're doing really, really well. But I also think that if people have other interests or passions that they would like to pursue, you can do that. And you doesn't mean that you've just, you know that you've um uh cut your ties with theater that, that you can do both exactly. that you they, yeah that you don't yeah. have to give up uh yeah that, that you yeah because i think most of the artists that i work with are totally cre are very creative beings and i'm sure they have other yes. outlets whether or not those outlets earn any more money than theater it's hard to say but they won't know that until they try it um yeah. I think that that's a very good thing to be saying to people is try, if you feel like you want to do it, try it. And unfortunately, I think there are lots of people who are having to find other ways to just make a living. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I've also always said to people, if you're going to go into theater, think about having a backup plan too. Uh, and I still say that and I will always say it because there are times I think then art, great artists, some of our really, really fabulous actors who don't do a lot of film, uh, um, they might get two great roles a year. So they have to have a plan and a lot of them do teach. And that too has sort of diminished in this time frame. So. Well, I, I think there has been some, like as you were talking about the Zoom conversations, there's a lot more sort of Zoom teaching going on in classes. And I think a lot of people have been taking like master classes, et cetera, and really getting a lot out of that. And that's one of the things that, you know, have been afforded a little bit more time where you can go, you know, I haven't really had time to focus on that, but now I can. And um, and you're right, there's, there's um, some... Uh, you had said that call an artist if you need a little bit of support call an artist if you want to pick their brains about something that they might be able to share some knowledge that they might share that you've been wanting to uh wanting to um uh connect with you know information or uh or how did you go about this or whatever i think we're i think we're pretty open these days to having um I feel like I have more time on my hands to be able to converse than I did, you know, 10 months ago. Oh but anyway, God. I only take it a day at a time. I'm trying to just take it a day at a time. Although in this job, uh, as you know, you have to kind of be taking it. Well, we used to have to take it in two seasons at a time. Yeah, yeah. 
So it's a bit challenging, but it's been so great to see you. I can't wait to have you sitting in a seat in the theater. Well, I'm looking forward to the chance to be back and sitting in a seat and getting back in a rehearsal hall and, you know, doing something when we'll be, we'll be in communication because we do have a tentative project, project at the end of May. Do, which I and hope we can do. Thank you very much, Roy. Thanks, Donna. Uh, Dramatic Pause is made possible through the support of the Canada Council for the Arts, Department of Canadian Heritage, BC Arts Council and the City of Vancouver and Fire Hall's many individual donors and supporters. Thank you for listening. And if you have any questions or feedback about today's podcast, please direct them to firehall at firehallartcenter.ca and we'll get back to you as soon as possible. Dramatic Pause is recorded at the Firehall Art Centre in downtown Eastside, Vancouver. It is presented by our artistic producer Donna Spencer and produced by technical director Alastair Wallace. The Firehall Arts Centre has been producing and presenting Canadian theatre and dance since 1982, and we couldn't do this without the help of our generous sponsors, benefactors and patrons. If you'd like to support Canadian theatre and artists by becoming a donor, you can visit our website www.firehallartcentre.ca. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those held by the Firehall Arts Centre, its employees or its supporting bodies.